Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 will be our text today. I did not have time to uh, put together a small sermon outline. Um, A couple of you had asked about that, but those are are not, you will not find that in your bulletin. (laughs) There is not one. Uh, It's a simple enough uh, passage to where I think you can follow along um, rather easily. We're going to be looking today, really over the next two weeks, at verses 18 to 25, this account. Today, I'll read all of those verses, but we'll really be focusing on the first half of that passage, and Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we will take up the rest, specifically talking about what does God with us mean in Emmanuel, and and really trying to drive that home with some application for us uh, that the Lord might see fit to encourage us. But for today, let's read, let's begin by reading the text, verses 18 to 25, Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. So far, the reading of God's holy word. I want to begin with some introductory comments about the, um, the differences that some of us have and the differences that have existed throughout church history as to whether or not to celebrate Christmas. There's been some debate over this throughout. If you've studied church history in any limited sense, you know that there's been uh, some differences Um, We should note that really the Bible is silent in regards to this. Nowhere in the scriptures are we commanded to celebrate the birth of our Lord. Early church history as well, the church fathers really uh, give no examples of the church setting aside a day to celebrate Christmas. In more modern church history, the Puritan era, after the Reformation, uh, most of you know the Puritans rejected the idea of celebrating Christmas. Christmas. Now, it's not that they, they didn't want to rejoice in the virgin birth and in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but their passion was that nothing would supersede the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is primary. The Lord's Day is the day that week by week we observe the, the Christian Sabbath. Week by week we celebrate what he did on the first day of the week. That is when he rose from the dead, when he conquered sin, death, and the devil So there's been some differences over the years um, in regards to this, but I should say also that even among us, I'm sure that there's differences. Maybe we celebrate to differing degrees and, and, and all of that even among us. 
But I also want to point out that I believe that there is, this is an area of Christian liberty. Um, that it's, if you want to celebrate Christmas, you're free in your conscience uh, to celebrate that. Also, those of us who preach, we, we, we recognize that it's an opportunity to preach some of these texts that might o- otherwise be overlooked. And so I, we believe the position of the church is that it is fine to celebrate Christmas. We're not going to supersede and cancel the Lord's Day if it falls on December 25th so that we can unwrap gifts. No, we're not. The Lord's Day always has the primacy over a, quote, religious holiday. Uh, there's a lot more that could be said about the origins of Christmas. More, most likely, Jesus' birth was nowhere near the month of December, as we know at this time of year. Um, but I will stop there. So let's talk about what is the meaning of Christmas. There's so much confusion these days. You have the lights, the glitter. You've got these blow-up things in people's yards that, you know, they, they look like monsters at night sometimes. And um, our neighbor had a red-suited monster that was there, and, and praise the Lord, the wind would always blow it backwards because anyone that's claiming to have omniscience to know if you've been good or bad doesn't deserve to stand because that's the place of God alone. Um, I sense she has not erected that figure um, in recent years, but there's other blow-up figures. There, there's these ugly, fat, red-suited men that we see walking around the mall. They only come out around this time of year, and you know, usually they're sitting in a chair and and, uh, but but we, we can't lose sight. Of it's, the, it, it's in regards to Jesus Christ coming into the world. And as we come to the Word of God today, we need to remove preconceived ideas about who Jesus is. We need to let the, to the Holy Scriptures that are inspired by the Holy Spirit, that contain no error, instruct us in these things. We need to remove the, the idea of the manger scenes and, and the media presentations and the movies and all of that. Now, some have tried to discredit the Christmas story, namely because Luke gives a detailed account in regards to Mary and the angel um, revealing himself to Mary, but Matthew doesn't mention Mary in that, that occasion, but the angel revealing himself to Joseph. So you have two totally different situations, but it's about the one event. And so some try to undermine, the, we can't trust it, you know, there's, how can these men that were alive then be so... Uh, diverse. Well, that's easily answered. Uh, they're giving two different perspectives. They're focusing on different things. Really, we have four Gospels in our Bibles, and really you have all four telling the same story of a man and his ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ, but from different vantage points. And so it's going to be different. You could use the analogy of a football game, and maybe somebody's up on the top seats, the nosebleeds, and Somebody's got good seats, and then a photographer down on the field that really can't see over the first guy he sees because he's level, and they all write a commentary about the game. They're going to focus on different things because they've seen different things. Now, is everything they're writing about that it really happened in that game? Yes, but it's from different perspectives. And that's how the, the Gospels can sometimes be different. They're written to different audiences as well. Matthew's Gospel is written for a Jewish audience, and that's important. That's why we see... If you let your eyes just look up a little bit, verses 1 to 17, that detailed genealogy. That genealogy is very important. It speaks that Joseph is indeed in the royal line going all the way back to Abraham and then down through to David, to King David, and then down to Joseph and ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's a fulfillment of what the Lord told David in that Davidic covenant that we referred to when we were preaching through 1 Kings. And it occurs in 2 Samuel 7. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom forever. That was given to David a thousand years before Christ, speaking of Jesus Christ, because it is his kingdom that is even reigning today. It is his kingdom that goes on forever. Now, though Joseph was not the actual physical father, he has the legal status of being a father. You might think of him as a, a foster father that, that adopts or something along those lines. He's not, it's not the physical seed, that's of the Holy Spirit. But certainly, Jesus fulfills that role. So the events in Matthew, they're, they're historic events. This isn't a, a fantasy story here. They're historic events, but they certainly have a supernatural aspect to them. At this supreme moment in human history, the supernatural breaks in on the scene as the promised Messiah comes. And the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a fancy word for God becoming man, is such a significant doctrine that if you here claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you must believe in this doctrine. And we want to talk about that just for a moment. In order to save us from our sin, God had to become a man. The Son assumed a genuine human nature. He had to obey God's law perfectly because we have all failed in Adam. He had to fulfill that. He had to suffer and die on the cross with a vicarious atonement that is paying for our sins, standing in our place, rising victoriously over sin and death and the devil. But make no mistakes about it, each of you here today. He was a real man. If you were to touch him, his skin would be warm and soft. He had tears. He became hungry. He, he, he became thirsty. He was a real man. And yet, he was without sin. The second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the, the, the Trinity and their perfect harmony and unity and fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, according to the predetermined plan of God from, from eternity past, determined to send Jesus Christ into this world to a filthy manger, to be born of a woman, to enter, enter in into our depravity, as it were, this depraved world. He was not sinful himself. And then ultimately to pour out his blood on Golgotha for unworthy sinners. This was according to the plan of God. And this is good news. That's good news for us. So Matthew is very clear about who Jesus Christ is. He is David's son. He has a legal right to be a king. But that's not enough to redeem sinful man. He had to be a sinless man. To conquer sin and death, he had to be sinless. He had to be divine because every single person born in this world is tainted with sin, the sin of Adam, according to Romans chapter 5. So, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this um, hypostatic union as it's called, the two natures of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the greatest miracles of all of Scripture. He was 100% man, wedded to 100% God in one person. He was 
the God-man. So that Paul could say in Colossians, For in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The fullness of deity, 100% God. He did not lay aside some of his godhood to become a man. It's 100% God, 100% man is what he was. So as we come to the text now, let's pause and just ask God's help one more time. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, as we come to this rich text of scripture, we pray that you would illuminate it to each of us here today. We pray that you would give us eyes to see that you would give us hearts that understand, that you would give us minds that are enlightened by your Spirit. Lord, that you would speak to us today, even from this beautiful text, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first couple of verses here, verses 18 and 19, are where our first point will be. It's the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. And Mary is found to be with child. She was betrothed to Joseph. Now, we might want to pause and just talk about that for a moment. Jewish marriages had really two phases to them. This betrothing was the first stage, and it was like a legal engagement. Now, this was not common around the world at that time, but it was something distinctly Jewish. So a legal engagement that lasted approximately one year in most cases. And this was not to be entered in lightly. Like today, you hear so-and-so's engaged. No, they broke the engagement. Now it's engaged to somebody else and da-da-da-da. No, this, that, that did not take place um, in Jewish culture. It was, it was a legal engagement. And notice also, it says, before they came together. That's an indication that they were sexually pure. That is, they had not had marital relations at this point. During the betrothal, there was no marital relations whatsoever. But it had the strength and the binding force of marriage. The second phase, of course, was the actual marriage ceremony. And at that point, the marriage would be consummated. Um, Some commentators actually add a a third phase, which would go before those two, where the parental arrangement of the children sometimes takes place when they're they're about this tall. And so you've got that, and then you enter into the betrothal, and then the marriage itself. Now, the typical age for this, believe it or not, girls were typically about 12 to 14 years old when they entered into this betrothal stage. Uh, The boys could be somewhat older than that, in some cases much older than that, Um, so that's kind of, that's what the betrothal is. And so when it says here that she had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, indicating that there was no sexual relations, she was found to be with child. And of course, Matthew tells us by the Holy Spirit, Joseph doesn't know this yet. Okay. And Joseph, her husband being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her planned to send her away secretly. So her husband, and it's referred to sometimes as that, even though that marriage hasn't taken place, again, um, found Mary to be with child. The idea that he was shocked and alarmed goes without saying, and, and not yet knowing that that conception was where? From the Holy Spirit. Now it says being a righteous man. Um, some versions say being a just man. The idea here is that he... His character, he is the character of God. He's upright, he's righteous, he's good, he's just. He's not willing to disgrace her. He's not willing to make a public spectacle of her. In fact, in the Old Testament, with the, uh, the, the punishment for this would be stoning. 
um, if she was found to be unfaithful of having been betrothed with another man. But brothers and sisters, just imagine for a moment, put yourself in Joseph's shoes, a righteous man in the godly line, right? In that genealogy there. And, and finally, his, 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 he's engaged, he's betrothed to young Mary and suddenly finds out that she's been unfaithful, so he thinks. Imagine the disappointment and the sorrow and the grief that must have filled every fiber of his being. But even then, he does not react in anger. He does not say, I'm going to put you away right in front of the whole village. That's, you know, all of that, right? He's not going to do any of that, being a righteous man. And according to the law, he could do it with as easy as two witnesses to issue that certificate of divorce and to let her go. So that's where he's at here. Um, But he has this tenderness for her. He's not willing to disgrace her. And so that's where we're at here. And then, of course, in verse 20, we'll get to in a moment, the angel explains to him, and it even says, when he had considered this, that word for considered means to ponder, to muse, to think, to, <clears throat> to dwell on. How often do we dwell on anything that comes our way that's, that's an unexpected event? How, typically, what we, what we do is re, we react, isn't it? We react right away. Rather than pondering and praying and considering. And that's what Joseph is doing when the angel comes. Now, I've already spoke about incarnation. I want to um, talk about the necessity uh, that we must believe in the essential doctrine of the virgin birth. It is very important to believe this. And I want to talk about this for a moment. Uh, Pastorally, I must spend time on this. Because those young people who are here, as you enter junior high, high school, college, you are going to be told, huh, you believe that? And the peer pressure is going to come upon you. Some of you adults, maybe you're struggling with, how could this, I can't figure it out. I can't believe that. We need to, it is so important that if you claim to be a Christian, you must believe this doctrine of the virgin birth. Let me explain why. Without the virgin birth, the Lord Jesus Christ would be merely another son of Adam. Every single person since the fall of Adam is born with sin. Even David says, from my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin. And so if there's no virgin birth, there's no way Jesus could be without sin. Born of a virgin emphasizes his sinlessness. And as the Apostle Paul would develop, that he is truly the second Adam. He is truly the new creation. Romans 5 and verse 19, Paul writing, For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many are made righteous. We were Christmas caroling a couple days ago in the neighborhood out here, some of us. One of the songs we were singing was Silent Night. That song, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. Of course, pointing out that his sinlessness there. But, and then the fact that she was a virgin. Now, how did, where did all this doubt begin about the virgin birth? Well, I'm sure it's taken place throughout church history. There's been heresy after heresy after heresy. Talk to Edwin, talk to Rob. We could probably name about 10 off the top of their heads. Jason, you know, there's heresies throughout church history. But probably the biggest spread of this doubting, some of the core 
Christian doctrinal truths arose after modernity during the, when liberalism really began to spread in the early 1900s. Many core doctrines began to be challenged and, and to be rethought out and to explain away. And so liberalism is spreading force full steam ahead. For example, in Isaiah 7.14, the Hebrew word that refers to virgin, the one that Matthew quotes here, right? Virgin will be with child. There's one instance in the Old Testament where that word does not refer to a virgin. So therefore, see, it doesn't mean she has to be a virgin. She wasn't a virgin, and so forth. And so again, they latch on to these things. But even if that's true in the Old Testament use of that Hebrew word, Matthew makes it very clear that Jesus was conceived without a human father. It's mentioned twice, right here on the first page of the New Testament. And so you have to be careful with listening to these liberal arguments that would explain things away and, wow, this scholar must really know something. No, let Scripture be your interpreter. And Scripture clearly says that he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. Sadly, some 20 years ago, there had been some surveys done of seminary students preparing for gospel ministry. Guess how many believed in the virgin birth? Approximately 56% of students studying to enter the ministry rejects the idea of a virgin birth. That is pathetic. Another survey done um, polling the various denominations about what they believe about the virgin birth. 69% of American Baptists believes it, 66% of Lutherans, 57% of United Presbyterians, 39% of Episcopalians, 34% of Methodists, and 21% of Congregationalists. Do you see what these surveys are telling you? These surveys are telling you that churches are filled with people who deny core Christian doctrine and yet say, I'm a Christian. There's a problem with that, brothers and sisters. Popular evangelical leaders such as Robert Schuller, who had millions and millions watching TV, the hour of power and all that, he say he refuses to embrace the doctrine of the virgin birth. Why? What's his reason? Because I cannot comprehend it. Well, Mr. Schuller, this is a supernatural book about a supernatural God. You're not going to get it all in your small brain. And I say that to anyone else that would say, well, I can't get it. I don't understand it. Therefore, I can't believe it. It's wrong. Now, why is it so critical that we believe this? If we deny the virgin birth, we deny his deity, his ability to be a suitable savior, to satisfy the just anger and wrath of almighty God. And we shouldn't be surprised by this stubborn unbelief that is all around us. I've talked about in the church. Now go outside of the church, and you know it's near. Almost everybody would deny that. But God's truth abideth still. Martin Luther wrote in that hymn, "Who led the Protestant Reformation." We shouldn't be surprised by attacks on the truth. The integrity of the truth is not affected by sinful men rising up to attack it. God is faithful still. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be! Rather, let God be found true and every man a liar. Romans chapter 3 and verses 3 and 4. It is also noteworthy, I've already mentioned it, that 
to see the wisdom of the Holy Spirit through the revelation of God of the Old and the New Testament, that these core truths are listed on the very first page of the New Testament. His true humanity, his true deity are both clearly set forth The promised Messiah that we read again and again throughout the Old Testament here now has come to fruition on the first page of the New Testament. That's good news. He had become the second Adam. That's the the pathway to the new covenant of which Jeremiah had prophesied about. Charles Wesley captures both of these truths, the incarnation and the virgin birth, beautifully in that hymn that we're going to sing immediately after the sermon when he says Christ by highest heaven adored Christ the everlasting Lord late in time behold him come offspring of the virgin's womb veiled in flesh the Godhead see hail the incarnate deity pleased as man with men to dwell Jesus our Emmanuel so the virgin birth is very much linked to all these other doctrines of his cross work, a substitutionary, atoning death, the resurrection and ascension, even his second coming, his first advent. It had, he had to be who he said he was in order for the second coming to have any meaning to it. So the virgin birth is an essential doctrine to be believed. Well, let's look in verse 20. The angel comes in a dream for a second point to give the needed revelation to to Joseph. The angel, angels, by the way, in Scripture typically appear, they don't just appear all the time, do they? They appear during times of revelation, okay, to authenticate a message. And so here, an angel comes in verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. No, Joseph does not act hasty, as I said. He considers, he ponders the situation. Um, Typically, men who are composed and mature and righteous or just or whatever term, not sinless, but all of that, they don't act in haste. They don't act in ignorance. They pray, they think through things, they think methodically. And Joseph, we see he quickly obeys in verse 24. He does what the angel says. This was a man of faith because he knew every child conceived from before this time was conceived by one way. There was one method of conception, and this is the only exception ever in the world. And yet he still believes. Remember, if we had time to read the Fuller Luke account, of which Jason read some, I read some of the call to worship, but, but where Zechariah is told about John the Baptist, what is his response? He doubts. Joseph doesn't doubt. He believes right away. So again, the doctrine of the virgin birth, it proves the reliability of Holy Scripture, the apostolic authority, the supernaturalness of the gospel. Even in the Apostles' Creed, some of these creeds, you know, we, we would adhere to. They're, they're listed in the back of the hymnal. But as soon as it begins to talk about the Lord Jesus, it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Right in that sentence, picks the four of the most popular words to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Very next thing, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit 
born of the Virgin Mary. This was a confession by which Christians would align themselves to say, I believe this, I believe, I believe, I do believe this. The comforting words that the angel gives here, do not be afraid. Uh, again, it's, we see that often when there's um, an appearance of an angel. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Um, the very thing uh, that Mary was told, do not be afraid. And here again. And so these comforting words to Joseph we see. Mary has not been unfaithful, but the conception is of the Holy Spirit. Do not fear. Do not be afraid to take her as your wife. Well, moving on for our third point, the, uh, the specific mission of Jesus was to save his people. Look again at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. His very name here, again, this is the angel speaking still, right? His very name reveals the nature of his mission, reveals the nature of it. Jesus, it's the same name of the Hebrew, uh, Joshua, Jehovah is my salvation. Uh, It's the Greek rendering of that. And he is the second Joshua that leads the true people of God into the true promised land. Brothers and sisters, the very meaning of his name communicates something about us if we're claiming to be his people. Jehovah is my salvation. He is the one that will save. He is the one that will save his people from their sins. What's communicated there is our great need for a deliverer, our great need for a savior. Each one of you, even you young people, do you understand that today? You have a great need to be delivered from your sin. You are in a desperate condition without a Savior. He is a supernatural Savior, full of grace and truth. He's come to rescue a sin-cursed people, and He's come to do that effectually. The name Jesus. You shall call His name Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. Now, there's... Hundreds of terms, some have said, well over a hundred terms referring to the Lord Jesus and the Word of God. The name Jesus is primary. We see that again and again in the Scriptures. Some 600 times in the four Gospels alone referred to as Jesus. A hundred times in the book of Revelation, Jesus referred to as Jesus. But again and again, there's these other terms applied to him, taken as a whole, and I just have a brief list here. He's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Ancient of Days. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's the Anointed One, the Messiah. He's our Prophet, our Priest, and our King. He is our Savior and the only wise God. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. He's the Good Shepherd, the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. He is the Word. He's the Lagos. He's the light of the world. The Tree of Life. He is the Way, the Truth, and the Life. He is our Rock. He is our Bridegroom. He is our Redeemer. He is our Emmanuel. God with us. That's just a brief list. It's a fascinating study. Go through some time and just try to, even in your, your regular Bible reading, keep up a, a tablet there. And just every time you're reading, that well, here's another term, here's another name, and, and jot it down. And each one speaks something very uniquely about who he is and his role. Well, how does he save his people? 
from their sin. What will he do? He will save. It's sozo in the original. It's the typical word for salvation or to be saved. It's to rescue. It's to deliver. It's to preserve. It's to cure. It's to make well. And and, and what does he save us from? He saves us from, it says, their sins. He's going to save. He saves from our sins. He saves us from the guilt of sin and its deserved punishment. He saves us also from the power of sin, that the shackles of sin before we come to God are now broken so that we're not enslaved to sin any longer. And who is this for? Is it for every person in the world? The Bible's clear about this. It says right here, it is for His people, a distinct people, that He will rescue from their sins. If it was for every single person, there would be no one in hell. The whole doctrine of hell would go by the wayside because there's no double jeopardy with God. So he saves his people, God's chosen people, from before the foundation of the world, of which Paul makes very clear in Romans 9 and Galatians explains. It's not a physical seed of Israel. It's the spiritual seed. And if you are of the faith, then you are Abraham's descendant. The book of Galatians says, so this salvation, it's a complete salvation. It's, it's, it's salvation from the guilt of sin, from, from the uh, practice of sin, from the power of sin. We are all sinners and we need deliverance from sin. And it's not just sins of commission, it's sins of omission. How many times have we sinned? We know that we should have done the right thing and have not done it, as James says. He saves his people out of and away from their sin, taking the curse upon himself is how he does it with his cross work. Do you see yourself as a sinner today? I know that's offensive language. I know that it can be offensive language to some, but we're all born sinners. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, says it is a trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am foremost. I'm the worst. I'm the chief, depending on your Bible translation. So that's his mission. That's his work. His name is related to the nature of his work, and that is bringing salvation to his people. Well, let's draw a conclusion, uh, concluding applications, and really I have just one today. Are you among his people? A very simple question. Are you among his people? Salvation is for those that admit to being a sinner. Each one of us has broken God's law. We have broken God's law again and again. And Jesus Christ is a glorious Savior. He said, it is not the well who need a physician, but the sick. He came to save us from the disease of sin. He did not simply come to die for your sin, but that through his power, he might conquer the power of sin in your life. Now, why do I say that? Because there's some, there's a popular teaching that you can have him as Savior, but not as Lord. I can have him as Savior. I know I'm going to heaven. I'm going to live like the devil. No, the Bible knows nothing of that. Listen to this illustration that, I read uh, from a John Piper sermon. He says this, and it's related to this. To take him as a sin forgiver, but not a sin destroyer, is like being deathly sick with pneumonia and using the precious antibiotic that's given to you to rub on your skin. 
And the doctor says, you're supposed to swallow it. It goes inside of you. But you say, I don't care for the taste. Besides, it feels good on the outside. I think it helps. But the medicine is made to fight your disease. You're going to die if you don't take the medicine. But you say, I think it'll work this way. Besides, I'm feeling good already. That's the idea of a people that, that, that can say that, look, I understand that's what the Bible says, that I must repent of my sin, that I must confess my sin, that I must embrace Jesus Christ by faith and by His grace. But I've got this way of doing things. I'm going to trust in my good works. I'm going to do this or that. Or I'll raise a finger towards Jesus, but I'll live like the devil. No, you will not be saved. He's clearly shown us what we need to do to be saved. So, people who are gathered here today, your greatest need is not the newest gadget as we're here at Christmas time. It's not the newest LCD TV. It's not the new car. It's not the new boat. It's not the vacation. It's not the cruise. It's none of that. Your greatest need is a living Savior who's able to actually save you from your sin. Because on the day of judgment, when you will give an account, when those books are open and you give an account for every single sin that you've committed, every single idle word that a man shall speak, it shall be called upon in the day of judgment. What a dreadful situation. But to confess, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. The Lord is well pleased with such humility, with such simplicity. You could never pay for your salvation even if you wanted to. Salvation is a free gift if you would but repent and believe. The Bible says again and again, whosoever will, let him come. Will you come today if you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful passage in Matthew 1 and even the occasion to preach it, the occasion to hear it, to consider it. Lord, we ask that you would indeed work in our hearts, that we would not lose sight um, of the ultimate purpose for which you came into this world to save unworthy sinners. Oh Lord, may we not lose sight of that. May we not be so distracted with all of the twinkle and the lights and the tinsel, the wrapping paper and all of these things, all of the greed and the selfishness that often manifests itself in seasons like this, But may we realize that this was the very occasion for you to redeem a people. Oh Lord, how we ought to live lives of gratitude towards you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll take your Red Trinity hymnal now and turn to number 203.